Good morning, ladies. So did uh, everybody sleep well last night? Right. So and y'all had bacon for breakfast this morning, so everything's good. <laughs> so <clears throat> we are now moving to sort of today, the heart of our time together. Yesterday, as you probably remember, we talked about the issue of perfectionism uh, in women and how perfectionism isn't really the problem, but the deeper-rooted insecurities, lack of self-worth, the need or the feeling to earn love, to gain attention and respect. And we said at the end that the, as good as, the therapy is important, I'm not denying that at all, but along with that, the quote-unquote spiritual antidote is going to be spiritual childhood, more or less, as taught to us by St. Therese of Lisieux is that little way of confidence and complete abandonment to God. And so what I want to do today is talk about three, I think, essential elements of spiritual childhood. And you could talk to all kinds of different people who are much holier than I am. You go buy Father Philip's book, and he'll give you other elements. There's nobody who has a comprehensive vision of exactly what it is. But I have three elements that I think are important and maybe are a little unique or not commonly thought of, not just because I want to be unique, but I want to give you something to say, wait a second, I never thought of it this way before, so hopefully it will make a lasting impression. So we're going to look at those three elements, and then tomorrow for our final talk, we're going to kind of look at it. what does it look like to live it out? How is living this spiritual childhood uh, and the confidence of coming and that deeper relationship as a child with God uh, overcome our insecurities and our perfectionism. So the first question is this. What is the most important quality of childhood? If you were going to define what does it mean to be a child, what would you say? I'm sure I could ask you all and would get answers like dependence, or innocence, or trust, or, or joy, or playfulness, whatever. These are all important things, but I would say in no way, shape, or form, or any of them, essential to defining what childhood is. Instead, what I believe, and I think I can make a very solid argument, is the most essential for understanding and defining childhood, not just spiritual childhood, but childhood, is relationships. Specifically, the child's relationship to his or her parents, father or mother. It's that relationship to your parents that establishes you as a child. That's what makes you a child, not any characteristic, not any quality that you have. We are all children of some father or some mother. That's what makes us children. Uh, one of the great theologians, I'll quote every once in a while, the 20th century, as a Swiss theologian named Hans Urs von Balthasar, he says, to be a child means to owe one's existence to another. And even in our adult life, we never quite reach the point where we no longer have to give thanks for being the person we are. This means that we never quite outgrow our condition of being children. Even the oldest person in here is still a child because you came from a mom and a dad. Does that make sense? Everyone is a child. 
You could be the oldest, most crotchety, mean person ever, and guess what? You're still a child because you have a mother and you have a father. This relationship is essential. It cannot be removed. So I really would say, though, if you want to look at the ultimate example of childhood, and we can flesh this out a little bit, is Jesus, the Son of God. For all eternity, he is the Son. And then, of course, when he is born into the world, uh, Jesus, his relationship to his mother Mary, and in fact, we could say that his experience of being not only the Son of the Father, but also that perfect child, gives him the ability to speak so beautifully and so eloquently about what it means to be a child in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So if we can understand and accept that, what then about spiritual childhood? What is it? And so if we're going to take that thought we just said, then quite clearly the foundation of spiritual childhood is not an equality or characteristic but it is our relationship to God, our Heavenly Father. That's what it is. One of the books that I have available, which I really suggest you looking at and, and purchasing, or the sisters have available, I'm not getting a cut of it, so don't worry. I'm not, I'm not in it for me. The sisters get it all. It is a book called Spiritual Childhood by Father Vernon Johnson. And he says at the beginning, and so this is what I loved, and his book was one of the things that made me really realize that, the first chapter in the book is not on dependence, it's not on innocence, it's on father. God is the father. He says, now a little child postulates a father. So St. Therese sees at once that if she is to become her heavenly father's little child, then for her, God must be before all else a father. Here then is the starting point of the little way, the fatherhood of God. We want to understand St. Therese's little way, the way of spiritual childhood, the way of trust and love, you've got to begin with our relationship to God as our Heavenly Father. So again, that's another book. He's going to really flesh it out uh, in a very beautiful way. Another book I suggest you picking up for a spiritual reading. So for Christians, though, when does God become our Father? Not when we're born, but instead at baptism. The catechism and the history of the church tells us that's when we become adopted children of God. And we are able to call God our Father, even as St. Paul says, Abba. In Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 16. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness that our spirit, with our spirit, that we are children of God. We are the adopted children of God. Therefore, we can call God Father. But not just any father, not a deadbeat dad, not one who's always absent, not one who's a drunk, not one who's emotionally dysfunctional, but a loving father who wants to provide and care for his children. This is the father that St. Therese knows and speaks of as the foundation of our spiritual childhood. And so it gets back to what I asked you to meditate on last night as this fundamental principle for our, our, our first point in spiritual childhood. Yes, that God is our father. That's the fundamental principle. 
but more specifically, that he is a loving father who loves you for who you are, not for what you do. Who you are, not for what you do. We've got to be able to understand and experience this. We do not need to be perfect. We do not need to impress God the Father or win His love. He loves us just because we are who we are. One of the great examples is is the father who walks in and sees his child asleep. He doesn't sit there and say, well, he's not being productive. I love her 75%. You probably love your kids more when they're asleep. They're not driving you nuts. Because the father loves the child because who she is, not for anything that she does or even in spite of what she does do. He loves you even in your imperfection. And probably he loves you more because of your imperfection. He's not there to judge you. He's not there to condemn you. And we're going to look at this more over the course of the day. So to understand this, to live in this, is tremendously freeing. When we live in the light of that love, that we know that God the Father loves us for who we are, everything is different. Because we now we become confident in our identity. What happens is, is imagine like here's like a sun, and I usually draw this for the people I work with, and there's like the, the rays of the sun. And this is the rays of the sun are living in the reality of God the Father's love. When we're there, we're not worried about who we are. When we feel that love, we're not worried about our identity. We know we're loved. We have confidence. But when we step out of that, that's when we begin to self-doubt. That's when we begin to hate ourselves. That's when we begin to think that we're not enough and that we have to win the Lord's love. But as long as we're staying in that light and living in our identity and the fact that God loves us for who we are, not for what we do, things begin to change. I can tell you, I have seen lives transformed particularly in young women, when they learn to believe this and actually live it. Does this make sense to y'all? This is the key. This is spiritual childhood. She understood that. She lived it. Even when things were difficult, she knew that Father loved her in the core and the essence of her being. The problem is we can know this intellectually. We can know this theologically. We could go read some big treatise on it. But it needs to be experienced. You know it all you want and still doubt. It can't just be experienced in the head. It needs to be experienced in the heart if we're going to overcome the, the curse of perfectionism and the deeper insecurities we have. But all too often, we have not experienced it, either one time or maybe through a more constant habitual experience. Sometimes for us, God is a nebulous deity or just an abstraction. God, that's the word we use all the time, God. What is God? We don't believe that God is just God. We believe he's a father who loves us. There's a radical difference. Who gets involved or who wants to be involved in our lives. A lot of people, of course, see God, whether you know it or not, as a just judge. He's up there in heaven, and he's like, you know, you saw the Olympics, and they're doing their dancing and stuff, and they're, they're writing down and critiquing you. That's what I think most of us like. At the end of the day, we're going to go before God, and he's going to hold up a card, 7.3. You know, you didn't didn't execute your triple axle perfectly. You don't get into heaven. That's not what he's like. He's not waiting there to judge us. He's not waiting there to critique us at all. Nor is he some sort of a capricious tyrant. 
One day loves you, and the next day is a jerk. He's constant in his love for you. And he's also not a father who maybe, yeah, loves me, but is so absent, doesn't care. He's there, but he's really not involved in my life. But too often we have concepts of God like this. Why? Primarily because, and again, I'm not here to hate, because all too often our earthly fathers have been less than ideal. We're going to get into this a little bit later. All too often our earthly fathers have been left without, they haven't been present. They've been abusive. They've been distant. They've been absent. Whatever it is, and they've left a father wound. And the real core of the wound that we often have is not just some general need of love, but really looking for and desiring the love and the affirmation from a father. Right, I'm not here to bash men. Not at all. I'll tell men this to their face. I do tell it to their face. Uh, but it is a reality in our culture. And maybe it's been a reality in all cultures. You know, women, motherhood is like written into your nature. No one needs to teach you how to be a mom. But men, bringing children into the world is our nature, or fertilizing, but when it comes to being a dad, it's not written in our nature. It is something much more difficult that men have to learn. And so we've got, though, today specifically, uh, what a lot of people have said is a crisis of fatherhood. How many of you would agree with that? Yeah, a crisis of fatherhood. Men who don't know how to be men, but men who struggle at being fathers. And fathers are so important. Now, granted, moms are super, super important. Not a good mom or an absent mom can lead to some serious psychological and emotional issues. But men are really important in the lives of their daughters. Super, super important. And I think all the research bears this out. Girls need to be affirmed in a way that's much more concrete than boys do when they're growing up. Physically, verbally, possibly more for boys than boys are, do. But the girls need to be affirmed not for what they do, but for who they are. Not for what they do or look like, but I love you and I affirm you because of who you are. Not because of what you look like, not because of what you do for me, not because you dance well, not because you make good grades. Fathers got, have got to communicate to that to them. The girl may ask, why do you love me? And the parent, specifically here, the father, needs to respond with words of affirmation about who they are and how they're loved for who they are, not for what they do or in spite of what they don't do. This creates confident, well-rounded children. But the parents have got to be very intentional about this. Why is this? Because it's important on the psychological level. But as Christians, we believe that fathers, in a very particular way, have been given the responsibility to reflect the love of God the Father in the world. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Masculinity matters. Care what you think your subjective gender is. I'm not going to get into that. Masculinity matters. Fatherhood matters. Women cannot be fathers. You can have fatherly qualities or characteristics, but it's the man in a particular way that reflects God the Father's love. Women can do it too. We all can do it. We can all show God's love, but there's something special about a man doing it. And so... 
one of the reasons, and I think studies will bear this out in common sense, that Therese was so confident in God the Father's love for her was because she had a saint for a father, like a legitimate canonized saint, Saint Louis Mortin. She also had a canonized saint for a mother. This surely influenced her conception. Von Balthasar uh, wrote a book on Therese, and uh, he says that Therese was born into a family which served her immediately and forever as an image of heaven. Reflected what the love of God the Father, what heaven would be like. And so she, she, she wrote some of the most beautiful things she wrote were the letters to her father or wrote about her dad, whom she called Papa. She said, right upon entering the Carmel, when I think of you, my dearest little father, I naturally think of the good God, for it seems to me to be impossible to see anyone on earth holier than you. She understood her earthly father reflected God the Father. And so what happens, it's just as a good father can help us in our own mind understand who God the Father is, a bad father, an absent father, can often translate for us not believing in God thinking God's abusive or thinking that he's absent. And so, unfortunately, none of us probably have had canonized saints as parents. You know? And we can look at our parents, and again, I'm not trying to throw parents under the bus, but maybe they'll admit they weren't perfect, but it leaves an effect. And so many men today, and possibly in the past, simply are not fulfilling their roles as fathers. Many are absent physically, spiritually, emotionally. They're consumed by their work. Again, maybe they're saying, I'm working so I can provide. That's an important thing. Difficulty in showing tenderness and emotion. Men generally are not good at this. I don't need to be coached at it. Not nagged about it. Coached at it. Lack of a spiritual life. You know, 90 women show up from Las Vegas. If we're trying to have 90 men show up for a retreat, how many would show up? Three. Maybe more than that. I'm not trying to say they're not men, but women tend to, to be more into that. And so the men aren't being the spiritual leader. A lack of vulnerability. We talked about that yesterday. How many of you watched that video last night? I probably went to sleep. Did you like it? Yeah. You think women have a lack of vulnerability? Men have a lack of vulnerability. We don't want to be hurt. Anyhow, you also have, and this is a big problem with the younger generation, in men who are narcissistic, who are like children, consumed with their own pleasures and desires, playing video games all day, looking at porn, not understanding how to give themselves. It's a real mess, the narcissistic problem. And especially guys, as good as they may be, as the girl gets older, she starts having emotional swings and things like that. And that, oh, I do not know what to do with this. And the girl starts crying for no reason. What? It's not compute doesn't understand. He doesn't know how to make that bond. And so often, the men, though, in general, it's not just because they don't want to do it, are often very broken. Why? Because their dads were the same way. And you look at the man, when I hear from someone, oh, my dad was abusive or absent or whatever, tell me about his dad. It's the same exact thing. Passed on from generation to generation. It's learned behavior. Men are often too hard-headed. You know how men are, like, whenever we're sick, you nag us to go to the doctor and we won't. Well, imagine if the man needs psychotherapy. He really won't go. He needs some counseling. He really is not going to go. It's not my problem. But what it does, as I said, it leaves a father wound. It can affect a woman's or a boy's perception of God the Father. is absent, critical, and caring 
unempathic, punitive, exacting, micromanaging. I mean, I, I see girls all the time, like literally crying out. And not that the fathers are bad. I mean, I can think of some fathers just weak, came from an alcoholic dad, doesn't want to show love, but crying to experience the love of a father, wanting that embrace of the father. And so because they do anything they can to get the attention, the perfectionism, trying to impress dad, and it doesn't work, and it brings them more down. Sometimes, of course, they give up, and they enter into the self-destructive behavior looking for that relationship with boys. If I see a girl in some very self-destructive sexual behavior with boys, dating losers all the time, first question I'm going to ask is, what's your relationship like with your dad? Seven times out of ten, it's pretty bad. She's looking for that attention that she never got. And then it's a struggle for moms, too. And this is where, really, ladies, my heart does go out. Some of you may be in this situation, um, particularly single moms. You know, here's this, you're listening to this, and I'm a single mom. I'm trying to raise my kids and doing the best the job that you can. Here's the good news. As, as my psychologist friend said, to raise remotely well-balanced, healthy children, only one sane parent is necessary. As long as we have one sane parent, chances are things are going to turn out all right. Maybe they're going to need some help. Two crazy parents, that's not going to work. But at least one sane parent. That doesn't mean the child is doomed if the father is not present. Mother's love can make up for a lot of stuff. So I want to commend, particularly any single mom here who's trying to make it work, know that the church supports you and that we pray for you and that we're there on your behalf. So the earthly father is sort of the main conduit of experiencing, I think, way God has planned, uh, God the Father's love. So if that father is absent, as it may have been in your life, or it may be in some of your children's life, how can we experience that? Because this has got to be the pursuit. If we're going to understand spiritual childhood, and we don't believe in God the Father, or we don't believe he's a good father, or we believe he's capricious, or believe he's absent, there's no way you're going to trust him. We trust people that we know and that we love and that we have a relationship with. So imagine, like, again, if you had a million dollars and you needed to, or something that was worth, like something that was worth a million dollars, who are you going to trust it with? The guy that you meet on the street that you don't know or a person that you know and you love for a long, long time? That person. And so we need to be able to have that relationship of trust or at least some sort of a relationship. And if we don't have it with God the Father, if we don't know that we're loved for who we are, and that we can trust him, and that his love for us is not dependent on our behavior, we don't have to impress him, and it's going to be very, very difficult, if not impossible, to truly live out spiritual childhood. So how can we experience it? If the Father is absent, or maybe the Father is simply not an option. The first is through prayer. Again, this is something that I'm going to kind of bring back um, in a few minutes. Prayer is essential. I mean, we need to be having a prayer life. that We can have a direct experience of God the Father's love through prayer. Some of you may have had it, maybe while praying the Our Father. 
overwhelming sense that you are loved as who, by who you are, that God the Father is there. But the struggle is, very few of us, it, it's difficult to experience that, because if we're struggling with perfectionism, what do we do? We bring that perfectionism into our prayer. And so we're like, all right, as I said, I'm going to stay busy and active the whole entire time. Look, God, Father, love me. We're so busy, we're so moving around, or we're so lack of, and we're doing it because we don't really want to let the Lord in. And we're going to pray a really good novena, and God's going to love us. And so sort of, even though we're spending more time in prayer, it's not really opening ourselves up to experiencing the Lord's love. We'll talk about it more later, but there needs to be able to be rest, to be silent, to allow the Lord to love us. Very hard to love a child who's fidgeting and squirming around. You can't embrace a kid like that. And so if we're doing the same thing, or we're kicking, we're fighting, it's very difficult. Prayer is not about what we do, but what the Lord does in us. I think I mentioned that, and I'll continue to mention it. And so the need to come, we still do our devotions. I'm not saying we don't have our devotions, and we pray the breathe, we come to Mass, but we allow the Lord to work in and through us. And it comes very, very gradually. He usually has to knock the walls down, purify us, before we can really experience that love. Quite often, we're not ready for it. But the second way, again, so we stay steadfast in our prayer and the Lord will reveal himself, is through other people. And this, for me, is essential to my understanding, and I think to a great degree to the church's understanding. The way the Lord, God the Father, normally communicates to us whether it be his word, whether it be his grace, whether it be his mercy, whether it be his, through his love, or through other people and other things. It's called mediation. It's all through scripture. For every one time in the Old Testament, you heard God speak directly to his people, there were 50 times he spoke through a prophet. He spoke through other people. That's how he does it. He will speak directly, but what happens is, is we're so often sitting there saying, Lord, show me your love, and we don't experience it, but he's put people around us to show that love, but we're waiting for this direct infusion. Even in the New Testament, Jesus is the word who comes to speak to us, but he goes to heaven, and what does he do? He sends his apostles and their successors. You know, when we receive the sacraments, we don't receive it directly. We receive it through created realities. That's how he chooses to work. He could have done it a different way. And granted, we can get lost and focus just on the created realities, but just because there's the risk of that doesn't mean we only go directly, just like it's the risk of abusing sugar. But it doesn't mean we throw sugar out. We just use it properly. And so in the same way, we have a risk of becoming codependent and attached to other people. We don't throw it out because this is the way the Lord has chosen to do this. And so this is probably one of my favorite quotes of all time. It's from Father Jacques Philippe. And he says, We urgently need the mediation of another's eyes to love ourselves and accept ourselves. The eyes may be those of a parent, a friend, a spiritual director, but above all, they are those of God our Father. The look in his eyes is the purest, truest, tenderest, most loving, and most hope-filled in the world. There's something about that. We're going to talk about this with the gaze, the look of love. 
when we're looked on and we're loved, we know what that's like. We experience it. And so this is the way it works, people. Can I get this through people's brains? The Lord has put people in our lives that are communicators of his love to us. We need to pay attention and quit waiting for the burning bush. Even the burning bush is using a created reality to communicate. But we often don't see it, or if we do, we don't receive it. That was the whole Brene Brown thing. Here's someone really trying to love us. We get the walls up. I'm not worthy of it. I'm not good. And we push it away. And so the Father is ideal. He is the primary and best communicator of God the Father's love. And so we need to be able to not nag, not harass, not browbeat, but encourage men to step up to be fathers, particularly in their roles with daughter. See, I, I do this all the time. I see it. These daughters who are going, getting attention in unhealthy ways, a lot of times from boys. And, and the issue is that they're becoming teenagers and they're getting in some very self-destructive behavior for different reasons. And, and the dad is completely absent. And so I said, this is what you need to do. Dads, you know, why, the wives are the ones coming to me. The dads are clueless. They don't know what's going on. You need to start encouraging your husbands to take your daughters out on dates. And this doesn't need to be just when they're teenagers. It needs to start at a very, very young age. Spending that one-on-one -on -one time. It goes so much more than words. That quality time that affirms the girl and who she is. Patience, compassion, tenderness, intentional gestures of affirmation. You will see results after a while. But the father has got to be involved. A girl who has that from her father and from her mother, chances are is going to grow up to be very well balanced. Again, the dad can't do it, the dad refuses to do it, then moms do it. Don't be helicopter parents, don't smother your children, don't be codependent on them because you're not getting the love from your husband. But as I said, only one saint parent is needed. But the truth is, anyone can show the father's love. We're all there to be images of Jesus. And Jesus is the image of the Father's love, as we're going to see. Um, particularly a father figure, a coach, or, or a teacher, or a director. These are legitimate places where God communicates to show his love. But, but I think one of the best and most powerful ways is as a priest. Priests are great channels, are supposed to be, of God the Father's love. I mean, this is essentially why men are priests, as we're going to see, because of Jesus. His masculinity was not an accident. You know, the Trinity wasn't in heaven one day, and oh, we're going to send the sun down. Should he be a woman or a man? Let's flip a coin. No, he didn't do that. It's intentional. His masculinity reveals God the Father. And so the priest standing in the person of Christ also, in a certain sense, stands in the person of God the Father. And it's something, as I said, in my work with the college students, now I'm old enough where I'm the, I could be the father of most of those children. In fact, I dated some of their mothers, which is strange, but that's just how it goes. Uh, um, but, but it is. So, I mean, I'm I, not like a big brother anymore. I'm a father. And it's something that's been important to me. Uh, I don't know how many of you read Henry Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, but there's a section in there where this woman talks to him and he says, Father, you know, it's time for you to pass from being a son and a child to being a father who can, quote, welcome his children home without asking them any questions 
and without wanting anything in return. And so I've sort of grown into that role. And this is part of, I think, my desire to communicate. I'm not Jesus, I'm not Padre Pio, but from my own experience, I think, of being the channel of the Father's love, I've understood a little bit about the qualities of God, the Father's love. You know, it's funny. So now a lot of the kids call me dad. You know, hey, dad, can I have the credit card to go buy some pizza? Yeah, they do. So uh, here you go. Uh, And they come to me, and I've changed changed the way I do spiritual direction, particularly with uh, the younger people, is I often don't give a lot of, I don't have a lot of great spiritual advice, but it's my loving them and being kind to them and wanting to spend time with them. Um, You know, I have four of my daughters who are going to the convent this year. And so I did my best. I spent a day with each of them. Uh, We did whatever they wanted to do, trying to spend that quality time to affirm them and their existence. And so, you know, I'll tell a story. You know, this is is what what I mean by this. So there was one student, and she knows I tell the story, who was UL, sweet girl, kind of flighty, kind of got on my nerves a little bit but sort of did as a lot of students will do, will like be present and then kind of ghost. Ghosting means you disappear, poof. Ghosted, but then she came back. I'm like, what's going on? But she was like really prayerful at mass, really devout. And so I went to her uh, after mass one day and I said, you know, I'm really glad to see you back at, at mass. Well, what's happened? And she said, well, I had a roommate and, and some friends and we had some fights and blah, blah, blah. But things are better now, and I'm sort of coming back into the community. And so I said, well, look, I'd really love to hear about how your spiritual life is doing. I said, sure. So we went to have coffee. And she was explaining to me everything that went on in her life and the struggles that she had had. And uh, she actually didn't know her dad. I mean, her father, her mom was a single mom, doesn't even know who her dad was. And so she says, you know, after we told the story, she says, Father, I'm going to tell you something that sounds crazy. Right before you asked me, to go have coffee, I felt in prayer that God wanted me to ask you to be my dad. And so like, I felt it immediately at that moment. It was like something put in my heart that I had the love of God the Father for her. This is a girl that I liked before. She was nice. But there was something that was like literally put it in my heart. And so now I love her to death. And, 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 and I've become sort of that spiritual father. And I've seen tremendous growth. And so it was not, again, it was not something that was built naturally. It was something that was inserted there. Uh, now, granted, that hasn't happened a lot, but it has given me a deeper understanding of how I think and the way I see her, can care for her, is the way that God the Father uh, cares for others. And so I think that priests, as they grow and mature in understanding of what it means to be a father, can have a very, very positive impact in the lives of many people, girls and guys. I got guys... You know, I'm blessed to have four guys being ordained to the priesthood this year. Four first masses. I am proud of these dudes. I mean, I talk about them all day long. I'm the guy I'm in the seminary, and they're getting ordained. Uh, and so it really makes you as a father like feel very, very proud to see your children succeed. But ultimately, the, the thing is, is we forget this. The way that we can really experience God the Father is through Jesus. Because remember, Jesus is the image, the icon of the Father. What did he say over and over again? John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Not that he and the Father are the same, even though there is a union there. But in his person, in his being, in his masculinity, Jesus Christ reveals the face of God the Father. 
So when we encounter Jesus, we, in a certain sense, are encountering the Father. You know, Thomas, why do you ask? It was for Nathaniel or Thomas, why do you ask? Where's the Father? Show us the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so the more we come to know the Lord and we encounter Christ, especially in the sacraments, we come to in the Eucharist, particularly when we come to in the confession, we have that direct experience of God the Father. And we can come, if we have a hard time approaching Jesus, Mary will bring us to Jesus. And so this is where Marian devotion comes in. She shows us that mother's love, which also can be very important for, for maybe making up what's lacking, but she always leads us to Christ who leads us to the Father. Does this make sense to y'all? And so, I mean, you take your pick. It all leads back to God the Father. And not just as some nebulous, abstract ideal, but as a father who loves us and who uses so many things to show us that love, we just either don't pay attention or we're closed off to it or we refuse it. And so this experience of the father's love is the foundation of our spiritual childhood, which means that that we've got to learn, okay, he's there, we understand it, some vulnerability. Sometimes we do not want to. Because remember, what does vulnerability mean? It means able to be hurt. So often we've been hurt before, so you put up the walls because we don't want to be hurt again. cannot trust someone you think is going to hurt you, that you can't be vulnerable around. And so we've got to understand that God the Father, it's not his fault that bad things happen. I say, oh, bad things happen to me. It's God. I'm mad at God. Why? It's probably your fault that it happened. You know, but it's not God the Father's fault. And so, but that's where it is. Again, we'll talk a little bit more about how to grow in vulnerability, how to drop the walls down to allow the Lord in. And, and, and there's one way that he sort of sets up, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later today, so that we can know that, that we are loved in our being for who we are. As I said, when we live in the light of that, we know we're loved, and it becomes a source of great confidence. It grounds our existence. We do not need to work to win love anymore because we've overcome that sense of unworthiness. And I've seen people who live in that. You know people who have great confidence and, and don't necessarily struggle with the same issues. They do. I mean, certainly. They struggle with self-image. We all do. But they live it in a different way. So whenever we step out of it, as I said, is whenever the doubts begin. And so now the question is, and we'll look at next, this is great, but what do we do when we sin, when we fail, when the walls come down? How do we deal with that? So this is your homework. Again, as I gave yesterday, yesterday. Have you experienced God the Father's paternal love for you? For who you are, not based on your needs. Have you had that experience? If not, why do you think? Number two, is there a father wound that needs healing? Ask the Lord Jesus into that wound to begin the healing. And then, during this time, ask the Lord, Lord, what are the the walls that I have up? What what are the, the areas, the lack of vulnerability? Tear them down for me, or help me to tear them down so that I can experience and begin living in that love. So I'm going to teach you all an act of contrition that I would like you all to say, it's going to make life a lot easier for everybody. Uh, even if you forget it, I'm going to coach you on it. And you could use this all the time. It's one of the legitimate acts of contrition. So repeat after me. 
Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. That's what I want you all to say. It's going to help us get through everybody. Uh, and the Lord knows you're sorry. And he's going to grant you his forgiveness. So we'll see you back this afternoon, or for Mass at least.